we were hooking up. Just walking by the uh, the dining area and outside a little bit. Um, I was thinking how stunning it is to see someone, see anyone, uh, be with their own experience. I think it was Shelley who was saying the first night that the, the view from up here, you know, seeing you, seeing this way, is, uh, is pretty... It's a precious thing. I know it's not always fine or easy to be with your own experience. This is, uh, it's hard work. I think if someone else were to look at the schedule, the timetable, waking up, that's pretty early. Okay, so get some credit there. (laughs) Then you sit, walk, sit, get to eat, sit and walk, eat again, free time, (laughs) 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 maybe some movement, jogging, more eating. Where's the suffering in all that? (laughs) Yeah? And yet, why are we here? We're uh, kind of thinking about things to discuss tonight, and the idea of um, talking about the larger picture, what are we doing? Why are we here? I just sit with that question for a moment. We had some ideas in the beginning of the retreat and we discussed that and the motivations also begin to shift as we settle more into our experience. We have more information. So one of the things that really connects us in life. It's kind of ironic, but it is this sense that life isn't necessarily unfolding the way we want it to. Things aren't so easy. In the, in the teachings of the Buddha, it's said that when we suffer, there'll be two possible results. One is we are bewildered, and the other is that we go on a search. We try and figure out what's happening. And I'm sure we've tasted a lot of both of those in our life already. When we're hurting, in whatever way that is, and we're overwhelmed by it, that's that category of being bewildered. We it's described we beat our breasts, beat our brows, and we are hurting. And then maybe it comes a time when we try and do something about it, and we go on a search. 
in a way we're in our own way kind of going on a journey that the Buddha did as well because it was out of his own struggle we're trying to figure out what feels wrong why am I not content is there something that I can discover about this some cause and so he went on a search and this is what we are doing we're on a search and because there was someone almost 2600 years ago now who had said I found a path it's an ancient path it has been walked before and if you walk it it arrives to a place of well-being, to a place of non-suffering. So here we are, you know, in our own way, whatever it is for you that inspires you to discover the way things are. You know, I was just sort of joking about the schedule sounding so easy, yet even when we're not doing anything, which really is what's going on. We're really not doing anything. (laughs) And yet, I'm sure that is not an accurate description of what you're experiencing. I'm not experiencing anything so far. Just beautiful trees. The birds are so delightful here. The sun coming through the, the boughs. and Sunrise. Sunset. Oh, it's so gorgeous. It's so easy to be. <laughs> easy to be me. How many people feel like it's easy to be them? <laughs> Is that a word? Are you raising your hand? <laughs> it does become easier to be ourselves. You know, that is part of what happens. And just to share... If you don't believe that, I have my own anecdote of uh, when I was a, when I was a monk and I was a monk for a couple of years with Nitajaniya, uh, and in uh, we kind of in that culture you get told a lot of different stories about uh, you know nuns and monks practicing in the the forest, deep seclusion, and it's said that they get some sometimes these powers that come to the mind from concentration so kind of like the spiritual goodies that can arise from the practice they're not the goal but apparently they can they can happen and so I was being told you know these different totally unbelievable uh, things that apparently the mind can do who knows and I I told uh, this time my teacher you know I don't care if I can make a double of myself, or if I can walk through walls, float up into the sky, turn into like a, a phoenix, apparently, or <laughs> some kind of crazy stuff. You hear these silly things. I, I said, if I could figure out the cause of my anxiety, in particular social anxiety, my fear of speaking in, in groups, or at least if I could come to peace with that, that would be, to me, a miracle. 
And really, and I was being very honest, because the conditioning was so strong, I couldn't see where the cause was. Is there something that I'm doing that makes this agitation so powerful that it feels like there's no escape? And I remember telling him that. So that was 2003 or so. Yeah, I'd go in for interviews, and there'd just be two or three of us at that time. So anytime there were more than one person and I had to speak, it would be a complete meltdown. My heart would be racing, totally red in the face, so everyone knew that I was anxious, which was really a pleasant experience. Trembling and having a report, and I thought, this is hopeless. I'm a monk. I'm supposed to be peaceful. <laughs> or there were these... Uh, Rituals that every couple of weeks you chant all the rules that you're supposed to live by as a monk. So here we're under five basic training precepts of non-harming. And then there's further practices that uh, kind of support us to really notice our attachments. So you can't keep food after 12 o'clock, for example. You can't store food. You can't cook food. So you're dependent on on the generosity of others. So many rules. Um, I think there's maybe 212? 227. 227. I didn't memorize them all. 227 rules. So every two weeks you get together and repeat these rules and it's part to keep the alive that training. It's just a tradition. And you have a little bit, just 20 seconds that you're supposed to chant and we'd all be lined up, you know, kind of squatting. You're supposed to squat during this process, and you say your little bit. And I'd be hearing one voice after another go down the line. You know, and as it was getting closer and closer to me, my heart would just be racing out of control. Now, there are all these monks here, because we they do it separate monks and nuns at, that, at that, those uh, rituals. So all these monastics... You know, and just better load up, better load up. And then it would come to me, and my heart would be racing so fast, I couldn't get any sound out. And I'd be like, you know, trying to say something, and slowly, like, you know, people would be looking back, like, whose turn is it? And, you know, just stumbling, stammering my way through it. And I want to share that because, in some ways, all along the way, these last, uh, it's been about you know, 15 years of my kind of dedicated practice, I'd say more than anything that has contributed to uh, what feels like a development is this sense that it just keeps, keeps going. There is no way to rush this process to discover our habits of mind, our personality, our conditioning, where we get caught, how we get caught. There's a quote that I love from one of the great translators that's alive right now, Bhikkhu Bodhi. He he said something to the effect of, in order to finish the path, we need to only do two things. One is to begin, 
and the other is to not stop. If we're headed in the right direction, whatever journey it is, however far it seems, we have to start and we simply continue. And that has been a real sense of, uh, it just feels more and more true. You know, I think in the, in the early periods of practice, it's almost like I have no idea what it is I'm supposed to be doing here. After my first retreat, I try and practice at home, and I would, I would sit and pretty much spend the entire hour trying to pierce through what seemed to be an incredibly dense fog in my mind, just struggling with the sense of what on earth am I doing? Is this, is this actually what sane people do? <laughs> you know, are we all crazy? Have you guys joined a cult? <laughs> Have you joined a cult? <laughs> <laughs> so what I love about seeing people be with their own experience is because for the most part, we have no idea what's going on in our minds and hearts. We have no idea. We have no idea what's motivating us in general. You know, and as Steve was saying uh, last night, the news is basically a catalog of defilements, of things that we're acting out. And if you ask any person that's acting something out, why are you doing that? They would have some reason. We all have some reason. We have some justification. And we feel as if that is what we need to do. Something is, is pushing us to do that. If it's anger, frustration, some views we have that are really strong in the mind. this process of being with our own experience. It's really shocking in its simplicity. And it's quite, you know, it's extraordinary that there is a spiritual path that at the heart of it is to awaken, is to be aware. It's not to agree with a certain set of principles. It's not to believe something or to follow rituals. The whole path is set up to be an invitation to discover what's true, what's real. A lot of our life we kind of skim along, we try to pretend and put on a good face for for everyone else. And I know it's a bit weird to be around people if this is your first retreat, to not do the kind of social engagement 
that we all are very accustomed to, you know, where we're, are you okay? You okay? Yeah. Please smile back at me, you know, and as long as you're smiling back, I know everything's okay. And the meditative face is like pretty relaxed. And so when the faces look relaxed, it's like, it's a little down. <laughs> so from up here, if you're nervous, it's like, oh God, they really don't like me. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that's, that's, that's okay. That's okay. You know, this environment where allowing each other, allowing ourselves the space to be ordinary, to show up just the way we are. If we're grumpy, it happens, we get grumpy. If we're confused, irritated, it's okay. Sad, uncertain, anxious. I'm not saying don't smile, by the way. And to each other, you don't have to do that to me. It's a gift. I do find that smiling is a gift. And we also give this gift of space when we uh, have enough trust in other people to be well, to take care of their their own experience and give them a chance to to really be with what's going on. Before my first retreat, I was on my own search. I had gone to India, I had recently abandoned my parents' dream of my being a doctor, I had left medical school. And I didn't have the Dharma, I didn't know about the Dharma. So it was a real plunge into the unknown, but I knew that I was hurting and pretty much all of my schoolmates were hurting. And I could see as well that my teachers were hurting. And it looked like the hospital was just a revolving door of people hurting. And I just felt like, I don't understand what, what is happening. Where is true peace? Is it possible to be happy in this world? And something really deep was questioned. <coughs> so after you know different things, I, I ended up in in India um, because I heard that's where you go if you're really confused. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a couple. My younger brother was also really confused, so. We ended up there together. So we saw, you know, saw people. Uh, there's a lot of people in different cultures that have long traditions of spiritual searching. It's a big part of their, uh, you know, of society. Like in Burma, there's more people in robes, monks and nuns, than there are in the military. That's amazing. Not that all of the monks and nuns are behaving well and practicing, but at least, you know, they're in a container that orients them to to wholesomeness. And in India, there's a lot of uh, sadhus, spiritual seekers wandering around, just different traditions. 
So that was the first thing that my younger brother and I kind of got primed onto. It's like the little duckling that, like, if you see red boots, apparently if your parents abandon you and your little duck in red boots walk by, and like, oh, mommy. <laughs> so then you prime on that, and then you think, well, this is now who my mother is, these red boots. And then you follow the red boots wherever they go. I don't know if you've heard of that, about that in biology. I remember that from my biology class. Like you can prime little, little beings to take on a parent figure. And it can even be something like red boots. So I, my younger brother and I primed onto sadhus. And we thought, this is the path for us. So we grew our hair out. We had long dreads. And uh, put on kind of this yellow lungi. Uh, at one point we even took a vow of silence to not talk for about a month. It was maybe a couple weeks. And we were trying to go at one point to a, a spiritual gathering. Uh, it was hilarious now in retrospect to see my brother and I try and communicate to each other because we had taken a vow of silence. And I, we must have looked like the most deluded people. <laughs> but we were adamant about this search. We were really, really looking. And I heard at some point about meditation. And just that word, something is like, yes, that's, that's what I want. I, I want to do that. And so I signed up for a course in, in a Jaguar in India. And the point I wanted to make was before that retreat, I really... I was really thinking, what could I possibly learn from what I thought was just turning inward by looking at the mind? All of my learning had been through external information, taking in information, taking in information. So then I'm getting very good at that. I could take in information and build up this stored knowledge. And that's what we really get trained to do during a lot of our life. And this is a very different process where everything that we need to come to understand about how to live well is through being with our own experience. We take in information, so we do need that piece. We hear the teachings of the Dhamma, we hear right view, we understand the teachings such as the Four Noble Truths of suffering and a cause and the end of suffering and a path. So we hear those things and then we have to see. There's a saying that the Dhamma is come and see. Come and see. Test it out. Is it true? is suffering, for example, which is not really the best translation for dukkha. It's really the sense of unsatisfactoriness. It is unsatisfactoriness. Is suffering true? The first noble truth, and each of the noble truths has a chore, has some uh, something that we're supposed to do. The first noble truth is Suffering is to be understood. We have to understand it.
And there's plenty of people in my <coughs> personal life that would argue they're not suffering. They're not suffering. Steve was sort of mentioning that yesterday. Jesus, <coughs> water. I need some water. Just recently, my um, it, was, it was interesting. I was a little bit shocked to hear my my dad has a very optimistic, very rosy perspective on life. Pretty much, and he lives in Maryland, and I'd say maybe ninety percent of the conversations. Uh, it always starts off with, God, the weather is so beautiful here. Or if they've traveled, my parents, if they've gone someplace, they'll say, we're so fortunate. The weather has been so beautiful for us. I think, well, I know that's karma. They just, what good weather is following them everywhere. <laughs> Which I really doubt, because my younger brother lives in England. And it rains there, you know. It's, it, it's not great weather. And yet their mind is, you know, pretty sunny. They both always kind of have that interpretation. Things are great. And it's like we can do that. We can sustain that interpretation for a while. It's always at an expense. You know, there is some, something we're not really seeing because anytime we're not really honest, we'll, we'll start to, to not see other things. But in my dad's case, he's been recently uh, telling me that, this is kind of very honest, he's saying, you know, aging... Hurts. The body is starting to to fall apart. You know, and he's doing what he can to stop that from happening. Right? And that's that fight. I don't want reality to be the way it is. So then, what do we do? We fight it. And you're saying, if I, you know, he he's was telling me now, if he had only known that aging was like that. He would have understood his father and been with his his own father in a totally different way. And his father was 53 when he was born. So he really only knew his father as an old man, an aging man. Steve's an old man. (laughs) (laughs) Aging. We're all aging. Every moment. So... And I was just thinking, yeah, that's that's what getting sensitive to what is real does. It makes you more awake in our own experience of really being honest with how things are. It sensitizes us. It's hard not to see other people in a similar way. Even just today, I was the shower in the teacher's cottage. Um, I'm not going to complain because it's like the teacher's cottage, and it's like now I'm in the teacher's cottage. I'm not squished with a roommate into you know, another room. But not everything's perfect. So the shower, and Steve has known this for years. He told me, yes, he knows that. The shower in there, it's an on-demand heating system. I don't know, maybe you have that also in your shower. 
And this particular one, I hadn't, hadn't really figured out. Shelly gave me some tips, apparently, how to work it. Um, but it pretty much goes from uh, freezing to scalding. <laughs> and it might hover in a okay temperature range, and then it plummets into freezing again. So I was like, all right, which should I do first? Okay, maybe I get cold first. <laughs> and then I'll get like, you know, hot. Okay, so I'm cold enough so I can be in like the hot. Okay, I'm hot enough I can go back to cold. <laughs> and it's like, okay, play with it, play with it. And then, okay, all right. And it was like, oh, I, I got it. It's like, it was just, it wasn't a good range for it. It was tiny shelly for about 20 seconds. And then just completely ice cold. <laughs> oh my God. So I was just feeling, I was like, all right, just if I can feel this for a bit. Wow, the body is so sensitive. Without even trying, really, it's not like a great insight. Like I wasn't suddenly liberated from hot and cold. I was. The <laughs> <laughs> cold was excruciating, so I was like clear. But it, it honestly made me so sensitive in that moment to suffering. And I just felt as I God, this body is so sensitive. So sensitive. You know, one comment. I got one negative comment recently at a retreat. You know, views and opinions. We all have different views and opinions. So I, you know, I cleared away, of course, from memory, all the pleasant things that were said, all the positive things. And this is a, it's called, I think, the negativity bias. We're biased towards negativity. So the truth of that retreat, of course, is that negative comment. So sensitive in mind. It's almost like we're looking out for, how can I get hurt here? You know, and experience is, is, on the other hand, so rich. We're given the ability to see if we have sight, to hear, to feel, to care, feel compassion and love. So there's this richness of life that, when it's cultivated, can be an enormous source for us. And so that sensitivity, and just noticing for me over time, that sensitivity is held in a much larger space of being able to, to receive the fullness of what's happening. We can learn about how I get stuck and just keep repeating and it's like I decided I would torture myself a little bit around this one phrase. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> yeah, come it was. <laughs> Alexis Santos is not ready to be a lead teacher of any retreat. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was teaching with Carol and Steve. 
he is clearly a notch below Carol and Steve in terms of helpfulness. Is that intended to hurt? Because it does hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So for for at least a week, my mind couldn't drop it. Couldn't drop it. And every now and again, it kind of because it just recently, it's about two weeks ago, it just comes up. And I've you know I've actually I've been a lead retreat teacher and a solo teacher and gotten great feedback. So I was like, okay, so factually it's not true, but but that person really felt that. I was talking with uh, kind of another mentor. It's just different ways of working around things that hurt, you know, things that sting. You're saying, yeah, for that person, they were telling them, telling you what's true for them. And you can just say, thank you. That's helpful for me to know that about you. And that's a hard thing to do. It's like, oh, that's how you're feeling. And yet, our tendency, of course, and this is where we really need to learn, is how am I reacting? How am I responding to this very deeply unpleasant experience that continues to proliferate in the mind and cause suffering. And so, you know, even though I've decided to repeat that phrase over and over again, partly it was, okay, it's just what my mind was doing. I wanted to face it. But I also wanted to see, where is that hook for me? Why do I need the approval of everyone, of everyone? Do I need everyone's approval? Is that in my control? And if we're not needing to control that, and we can begin to really open to simply feeling all the different things we'll experience, and we allow other people in their own experience, I just feel increasingly there's this freedom. Oh, I can, I can be with this these emotions that get triggered and that hurt. But I know now how to be with them because that's what is developed. We learn how to be aware, open to that difficulty, and then we see what actually is an emotion. What is it? Is it solid? Is it permanent? We feel it, and yet when we really look into it, it's not what we are. It's like a, a burst of sensations in the body, and maybe the mind responds with thoughts. It's amazing. These things are extraordinary. Emotions. We really get interested in what emotion is. The nature of a thought. Thoughts are so powerful. You know, the world is spewing opinions back and forth at each other. It's just thoughts that are risen in the mind, not really seen, and then boom, it comes right out. And we identify, this is who I am, these are my views. And then the more identified we are with our views and opinions, of course, then we get into deep conflict, rather than just 
the wisdom that just simply understands this is how I see it. That's all. For now, this is how I see it. Just there's a few more words on <coughs> this practice. <coughs> the big discovery that I had on that first retreat was. It really is up to me. It was very clear. My suffering really is up to me. Not that I'm going to get what I want, but there is so much to understand in our own minds, in our own hearts. So what the Buddha discovered was what is called the Dhamma, the way things are. And it's not, you know, we say it's, it's kind of, it's the law. It's the way things are. And a lot of people will compare the Dhamma to gravity. So we may not be thinking about gravity, aware of it, and yet pretty much all of us were walking on the ground today. <laughs> if you manage to levitate, great. <laughs> but for the most part, gravity was holding us down. We call it gravity. You know, as soon as that experience, it just holds us down and then here we are, we feel the pressure in our feet. So the law of gravity is happening. The lawfulness of the mind, which is what we could say is part of what the Dhamma is, it's always happening. So when we are in a, in a a sense of ease, of calm, of clarity, of well-being, it's lawful. There's some causes that have preceded that. And it's lawful that the result feels like, oh, this feels pleasant. When the mind gets confused, reactive, uncertain, and we're caught in it, identified with it, there's a result. It feels like we're struggling, we're hurting. Becoming aware, this is confusion, this is struggle, this is doubt. It might still feel like it's gripping us, but that already is a radical shift. To be aware of our experience is a totally different experience than being identified and caught in it. Now we're starting to grow the ability to observe, to open to what's happening. This is how we develop the practice. We just, moment by moment, support remembering what's happening. Whatever it is, however we're doing, and this is why I was like, sit and walk, sit and walk. Nothing's happening, and yet we're getting more familiar with the different experiences, what's going on in the body, or how a single thought will trigger a cascade of emotions. And if we're not seeing that, then the mood gets formed. If we don't see that, that mood 
conditions a day, a few days, a week, a lifetime. Simply starting to recognize, oh, this is a mood. How does this mood feel? Where is it? Can I be with this? Is it okay? Did I wake up with this mood? Is it the same mood that I woke up with that I'm going to sleep with? So slowly we start to see this changing experience that we just normally say is me. And what we say is me is so much more than that. In a very simple level, even just connecting to the sense doors, what we say is me is also seeing, hearing, sensations in the body, feelings, thoughts, tastes, and odors. But the mind is always saying me, me. So we're waking up. Just waking up. Very simple. And I want to say that because particularly in a retreat space, it's very easy to get really tight and stiff about the practice, like trying to get it right. There's nothing we have to really get right. Our own experiences are happening, and all we need to do is recognize. Those moments of recognizing grow the habit of being aware. And you'll find, just sometimes go for a walk, without even trying to be aware. See if at times the awareness comes back. Very natural. So we're growing this ability for the mind to be established in knowing, established in remembering. It's very lawful. If you have a moment of mindfulness, that strengthens that quality. I was sharing my group this morning. Uh, this is... It's like a, this image came in that group. It's like, oh yeah, it's like we're picking up these invisible, tiny barbells. <laughs> <laughs> and every time you're being mindful, it's like you've just done like a curl. Is <laughs> that a curl? And so it's like noticing you're seeing. It's like, oh great, that's one. It's like, how many reps? <laughs> how many reps can we do in a day? <laughs> this is how the, the mind gets stronger. Gets stronger. Just lots of lots of reps. Tiny, invisible. They're so small. It doesn't. It's not hard. So just feel. Notice what's happening. And before long, really, the, the mind, the natural, that's the habit of the mind, the tendency is we're more often going to be aware, knowing what's happening, than unaware, not knowing, not remembering our experience. So we just we cultivate this, have some confidence, we keep, we keep going. here and just take a few moments to sit quietly together.